Brenda and I appreciate you, and we appreciate this sign of our relationship and affection for each other. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can gather here today, that this is an opportunity to be together in your presence. We know we can always be in your presence. We know we can always pray, we can read your word, we can worship, but it is a privilege to be here together to do this. And Lord, as a human person who is your servant, I appreciate this congregation and the way they've uh, taken Brenda and I in. We do pray that our service will lead us to, our service with them will lead us to see your kingdom grow stronger in this community. So Lord, as we sing, as we read scripture, as we pray, as we listen to one another, and as we listen to your spirit, may we know that we are guided in this worship by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Our psalm for this morning is the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. The pastoral prayer is misnamed. Now, it's usually the pastor that does it, and that's probably why it has its name. But it isn't pastoral, it's priestly. It's at this time that we draw our attention to make intercession for others, and that's the job of a priest. And I want to remind you that Peter said that we are a nation of priests. And so I'm going to call you to a time of prayer. I will voice a prayer. And you can either voice a prayer where you sit or you can pray in any way that you wish. But we need to join together as priests making intercession. We need to make intercession for our families, for our church, for our community. We need to make intercession for those who put themselves in harm's way on our behalf, whether we see it or not. Whether it's the policeman that put on a uniform or a school teacher that puts on a mask. Intercession. 
And in this time of decision, in this time in which our country is going to be stretched, as we consider the issues that cause, motivate each of us to vote, it's citizenship. And it's a failure of citizenship not to vote. It is your conscience and the conscience of others who direct the boxes you will check. But it is your duty as a citizen to check a box. So you've got plenty of things. I haven't even begun to touch what we can intercede about today. But let's go to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we come to you on behalf of our church. We need your guidance and your direction to know how it is that we should build your kingdom in this place. We need your direction on knowing how to join together with others to extend your kingdom around the world. And as Kathy reminded us, we need to know how to implant seeds of your kingdom in our children and in our youth, particularly right now. We're at a loss for knowing how to perform this critical ministry, but it's necessary, and we've got to find a way, Lord. We pray, Lord, for those in our midst that are ill. Touch their bodies. We pray for those whose spirit and mind are affected by events or even just a chemical imbalance. Lord, touch our spirits. There are some among us who are struggling with active sin. Please help us to be a congregation that brings one another back into fuller relationship with you. And just over a week, we will go to the final day of this voting season. Help us to do so in a way that brings glory and honor to you. whatever our opinions about the people that are running or the issues that are at stake, you do not excuse us from representing you as we do it. May we model that for others. So Lord, we are before you now singing and reading and listening. May your spirit inspire all of those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you worshipped in music this morning? Thank you, Larry. Anybody else? See, I can't tell jokes. All I can do is poke fun at folks. And sometimes that gets me in trouble, so I try not to do it very much. 
unless I'm poking fun at myself, which is reasonably easy to do most of the time. But it seems to me today, as we gather, that we should have a, a time of hope and encouragement. You know, we, I think we need something like that. But you know, after I wrote that sentence, it occurred to me that the only time we notice hope is when, and when hope is most visible, is when conditions exist that are attempting to mute hope and, and to hide its presence. So it's, am I working at counter forces here? I don't know. But there are two considerations, two conditions that I think are trying to mute hope that I want to address today. We're living within a dominant culture that denies the reality of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. Secondly, we are people who are characterized by a corrupt nature. And we obtain that and perpetuate it in a corrupt culture. Now, in the Bible, there are numerous, numerous, numerous stories of God affirming the reality of his provision for us. One of my favorites is the story of Elijah. I like Elijah. I mean, how, how can you not help a guy like a guy who, who dresses and eats and talks like him, you know? He's kind of the John Wayne of the Old Testament. Except in this story. He was hiding by a brook, and he was hiding from Ahab. He was so intimidated that he didn't even bring food with him and he didn't have anything to eat. So God had to send ravens, the Bible tells us, to bring him food. So maybe he wasn't so much like John. Now, if you think that this type of care only existed and is testified to in the Old Testament, you're wrong. You may not have heard of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary who went to Native American groups preaching the gospel. And as a result of his labor, he introduced many of them to Christ. And Brainerd was a man of extensive prayer. He kept volume after volume of um, diaries, notebooks, where he detailed his praying and his experiences, his praying for the people that he loved and for the situations he got in. One day, he was traveling to a, a distant village to deliver the gospel and minister to people, and a severe storm overtook him. There he was, no shelter, not prepared. He hid himself in a log. He found a hollow log, and he got inside of it. But that storm raged for three days. And at first he was 
praying primarily for, for the people he was going to minister to and that they would be uh, protected during the, from the storm as well. They were reasonably exposed, as you might expect. But then his situation became a little worse, and he began to pray for himself that God would meet his needs because he had nothing to eat. And a little while later, he noticed a squirrel. This squirrel came scampering across right up to the entrance of this hollow tree, this hollow log, and looked at, at David and chirped a little bit and took off. And David noticed that there was a small collection of nuts. So, not being bashful, he said, thank you, Lord, and he grabbed the nuts and had something to eat. For three days, the storm continued, and for three days, the squirrel returned with nuts for him to eat. Not ravens and not Elijah, but God's provision. In our life, we rely on science. Science provides us with a lifestyle that we enjoy, and it's essential to that lifestyle, but it has its limits. And those limits are sometimes resisted by some scientists. Now, they correctly assert that we cannot prove the existence of God using their scientific method. And this is said with more authority than it deserves because it's based on the assumption that the only reliable knowledge is knowledge obtained by their methodology. And can you imagine the reception I would get if I told the story I just told you about a man being fed by a squirrel for three days? I, I even wondered about telling you about it because there, when, when you talk like this, people will look at you with that patient look. Maybe you don't get it. I get it all the time. It's like, okay, you really believe that? Are you sure? The problem is, we can't predict divine intervention. It fits outside of what science can look at. Because usually divine intervention is one-off. No, God heals people repeatedly. But for those people, it's just one-off. You can't get a control group. You can't do random sampling. Divine intervention is a mystery. Why? That's why we call it miracles. My, one of my favorite words in Kirundi is nikitangaza. Loosely translated, it means miracle, strange thing, a wonder, something unexplainable. But basically what it means is holy cow. How do you apply scientific methodology to holy cow moments. 
The Bible's clear, God provides for his people. And he does that with giving us more than daily bread. He's made provision for our spiritual needs as well. And you and I are able to receive eternal life because God's provided it. You and I are able to enjoy forgiveness because God has provided it and modeled it. God took flesh and dwelt among us so that we would have no excuse about knowing who he is. Well, we're going to read today from 2 Peter. Just a few verses here at first. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, Thus, he has given us, through these things, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust, and may become participants of the divine nature. Those are some pretty bold words. Peter asserts that God has given us Some things? Mostly what we need? No. Peter says everything we need. For life and godliness, God has provided. He affirms that God is transforming us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. He also affirms that we indirectly demonstrate the reality of God as we are transformed from this corrupt nature. And that the appearance of the divine follows us, is present when we go, because we are his children and we are being transformed. Divine nature is counter to the corruption. Counter to the corruption that's in the world because of lust. Now, wait a minute. I am not preaching entirely about sex here. We have places in which our translations and interpretations is pitifully pathetic. Lust is one of them. Because lust isn't just, it, it includes objectifying another person sexually but it also includes all of those passions. It includes all of those fantasies, all those desires in which satisfaction brings pleasure and non-satisfaction brings pain. So it it isn't just sexual lust. It is this passion that grips us, and that is why Peter presents this as an issue of freedom. God is freeing us from our corrupt structures of living. He is freeing us from our corrupt nature. And this is absolutely amazing. Even more so, because so many of us continue to be 
enslaved to various passions. Now, if you're still thinking I'm talking about sex, let me tell you a story. My family has played baseball for more than 120 years that I have documented. I suspicion it's longer than that. I mean, there's stories of great uncles heading off to tr for an, a, a Yankees tryout and their car breaking down, and they, they had lusted after playing for the Yankees because when their car broke down, they, I mean, 40 years later, they were still not over it, okay? That's disappointment. Family lore, in order so that you can understand the importance of, of baseball to my family, um, my grandfather got into it with one of his brother-in-laws. The man swore he was going to shoot him, my, my grandfather. And they played on different baseball teams. For seven years, my grandfather, who was a catcher, had a revolver in his back pocket. But he didn't stop playing. A few years later, he did attempt to shoot Grandpa, and, but that's a different story. I inherited that passion. You may have noticed it. I have inherited that passion. When I was in high school, my mother came up to me, and she informed me that through some of her contacts, she had been asked if I would desire a tryout with my favorite team. Talk about a rousing lust. At 11, I had surrendered to preach. There was one thing, one thing alone that I knew could derail God's call on my life, and it was baseball. Now, the odds of me doing anything besides what I did is pretty slim. That's not the point, isn't it? Your fantasies, whether they're sexual or whether they're financial or whether they're career, whatever they are, it doesn't make any difference whether you're actually going to achieve it. In some ways, lust is excited by the, the distance that the object of your lust is from you. I said no. It wasn't a matter of strength. It was a matter of fear. I did not want to have to make that choice. I would much rather be able to talk about it 50 years later and say, well, what could have been? And besides, they weren't paying that much in those years anyway. It was better than most of the churches I pastored, but it wasn't that much. Many Christians live without knowing full provision because lust controls us. And we can't find a way to get through it. In the 1880s, there was a young Italian, a young man who saved his money and saved his money and finally got enough money to buy passage on a ship to New York. He, got, he, he carried his bag, and he got on board, and in his bag he had packed cheese and crackers because he, 
he'd used all of his money to buy the passage. And so for most of the, of the trip over, he stayed in his room. But towards the, 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 you know, with a few days left, he ran out of cheese and crackers. And he ventured out of his room. And the steward met him, and he, and he said, I haven't seen you at meals. He said, well, I can't afford it. He said, what? He said, I, I, I can't afford to buy meals on the, on the ship. And the steward looked at him, and he said, man, your meals are included in your passage. That's us, folks. God's provision for a victorious life are included in the salvation. They are included in the very first time we say yes to God. But there's a condition. And that condition is, is that we are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. That means that in an ever-growing continuous way, we become like Christ because of our obedience. Now, many of us want God on our side, but we don't want to live that kind of life. We don't want to have that kind of surrender. We would just as soon have the lust. In fact, truth be told, we're comfortable with our lust. But that's not Christian. Paul says in Romans 6, 3, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It is enough. It is not enough to have this knowledge in our heads. We have to have it in our hearts. It is the same thing Jesus said in John 15, that he's the vine and we're the branches. Sunday school kind of got into this a bit today. Most of us approach issues of, of faith and discipleship as, as rules. And I listened to the group for a little bit for, well, when I could, struggling with the idea that when Jesus got a hold of it, it became less defined, which makes it harder. Because Jesus took it from the objective outside rule that we're to follow, and he wanted to plant it inside of us. He wants the crow. Control to come from within. That's being a disciple of Jesus. So having the rules doesn't help us. It's, it's, it's being the, the branch. The branch is not fed from outside. We're fed from inside. This topic just got me thinking about old missionaries. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. He too was another prayer. And he made a great deal out of this, John 15. And there are a number of entries into his journals in which he talks about not having enough sap. That if he could only get more sap out of the, out of the vine, he would... And, and he wrestled with this. And, and in 1869, he wrote his sister, I knew that if I could only abide in Christ, if I could just find that way to do that, and all would be well, but I could not. Excuse me, the more he tried, the more he failed. How to get more sap into his cell? 
But remembering that Jesus said he was the vine. He was the root, the branches, the twigs, everything he needed. And it occurred to Taylor finally that he didn't have to make himself into a branch. That when he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he was grafted in. He was a branch. You are branches. Every single one of you that have given your life to, to God through Jesus Christ and you are disciples and followers of him, you are branches. Plain and simple. What does verse 4 tell us? Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises. Hmm. What is a promise? Isn't it an assurance? A promissory note. You've kind of committed yourself, haven't you? God has given us promissory notes. He's committed himself to us. It isn't just that we, he expects us to be obedient. He expects us to be branches receiving his sap. You see, we're promised even more than that. We're promised a direct relationship. We're promised, and Peter spells it out in a very unique way. We are promised to be partakers in the divine nature. That seed was planted in you. In the Kalahari. It's, a, it's an amazing place. Life is different there than any other place in the world. But the Kalahari, there are parts of it that can go for three to five years without one drop of water. Without one drop of water. But when it rains, that desert burst into life. There are flowers and there are grasses. And there are things that explode with that little bit of water that have been lying there, lying there dormant, waiting to be nurtured, waiting to receive the nourishment of the water. The rain can be brief, but its effects are dramatic. Follow with me the verses that follow. Beginning in verse 5, after the lust thing, for this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith. That's kind of like rain, isn't it? With goodness, and goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with endurance, and endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now we're at the point of dealing with our second condition. 
the existence of God. You cannot argue, you cannot prove that God exists. But that doesn't mean we have to give up. It doesn't mean we can't take the day. You see, even in the scientific method, when it is applied, there are more mysteries than you when, when the mysteries build up to such an extent that their theoretical frameworks can't support them anymore, they have to throw them out and find new theories. Okay? Happens all the time. Well, not all the time, but frequently. Einstein predicted black holes back before the First World War, over 100 years ago. Have you guys ever seen a black hole? No? That's because you're not going to. I did a little research here, and if my research was correct, you're not going to see a black hole because it can't be seen. But we infer it because of the relationship it has to things around it and the way they act. And so for those things to have to happen, then... A black hole is the only way to explain them, they say. I take their word for it. A black hole is the only way that you can explain it. But they can't describe it. You can't prove it. You make an educated guess, and, and science substantiates them through inference. It's a reasonable conclusion in inference that something exists or as a cause of other outcomes because it's the only thing that can make sense. When our faith is supported by the characteristics that Peter describes, then the acquisition of the divine nature points to the fact that there is a divine being in relationship with us. It's the only thing that makes sense. In Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, Towards the end, Christian and hopeful lay helpless prisoners in Doubting Castle. If you haven't read this in a while, you should. You should. Doubting Castle was the property of giant despair. Bunyan was anything. He was not subtle, okay? Giant despair is the owner of this castle. And while they were laying there, Christian says, what a fool I am. Thus to be in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty, I have a key in my bosom called promise, that will I am persuaded open any lock in Doubting Castle. He pulled it out of his bosom and began to try it at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard and with the key opened that door also. After that he went to the iron gate for that must be opened too. But that went desperately hard. Yet, in the end it opened. Like you and me, Bunyan knew that it's the promise that we already have 
It's the key to a successful life with Christ. You have it. Use it. I don't know. I don't know any other way to explain it to you. If overcoming the parts of your nature and the parts of our culture that inhibit your ability to get sap out of the vine, there are promises you can access. My prayer for you is that will be your action. Paul voiced much the same prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe? According to the working of his great power, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he has put all these things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we're going to sing. While you sing, I want you, as we sing this last song, I want you to, to consider this. You have all the spiritual resources you need to lead a victorious Christian life doesn't mean your life is going to become without pain or come without, become easy. But you can lead a life that overcomes corruption. Your life and your living are in the Lord's hands. And the inference of his presence is in ours. Think about that. That by the way you live, you either affirm or deny the existence of God. Let's sing. Lord, you've brought us here. You've met us. Lead us from this place knowing that victory is ours. Knowing that even though we continue to struggle, victory has been purchased and provided. May we claim it and may we live it. And may our living increase your reputation amongst a nation of doubters. Thank you that we are your children. Help us in this week to live like it. In Jesus' name I pray. You're dismissed.